Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Gospels. Father, we thank you for the four men that you inspired to write about the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, We know, Father, we could learn about him in so many ways, but what a joy it is to read the story of his life told from people who were there uh, so that we know, Father, that not only was he uh, God in flesh, but he was man as well. Uh, And as such, Father, we can relate, and we thank you for that. Help us understand the things we'll study tonight. Help us understand them in new and better ways. Teach us all, Father. And if I teach an error, Father, fix it in their hearts as only you can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3 of Matthew. Let's move there. And as we do, we're going to find Matthew leaving Jesus' childhood story behind. And now he moves into talking about how Jesus began his ministry as an adult. And it's actually a fascinating thing to most Bible students that the Bible doesn't really give us a lot of detail about Jesus' childhood. It's that stage of his life that we'd probably be most interested in. Anyone who's raised a two-year-old would love to know how an infant that's perfect actually lives, right? We have all those questions. Luke gives us a few details, and only Luke, by the way. But even then, he only gives us really just one story, the story of when Jesus is left behind in the temple when he's 12. But nevertheless, we can assume some things based on things that we know are true in Jewish life and in Jewish custom back in that day. And as a result, our assumptions are probably pretty accurate. For example, we know at age 13, Jesus would have experienced his bar mitzvah, which is the Jewish rite of passage recognizing a boy's transition into manhood. Uh, In fact, the Luke story on Jesus being left behind in the temple, that happens when Jesus is 12 during a Passover And it was customary for the boy at 12 to be taken to Jerusalem as part of the Passover observance in preparation for his bar mitzvah. So that's probably why he was there. Later at age 17, Jesus would have been made an apprentice to his earthly father in the trade of his family. That would have been customary. Carpentry was the trade of Joseph, as you may remember, and so that's what Jesus' trade would have been. Now, carpentry in this day was more than just working with wood. It meant being a stone cutter also. So Jesus would have worked with stone and with wood. He would have learned to work with his hands. He would have done all of that under the instruction of his father, Joseph. But he would have also been apprenticing under his heavenly father, preparing for his profession in ministry. Jesus being fully God, not descended from Adam. We know he was perfectly sinless. But being fully human as well, he had to learn. He had to learn like anybody else has to learn. He would have had the Holy Spirit as his teacher, Uh, in in learning the things from a spiritual point of view. But it would have required time. It's not as though because he was God in the form of man that he could just jump over, shortcut, and skip all the things that you and I have to take for granted as part of our development. He had to experience them all. And he needed that time to prepare for the ministry that God had for him. But there came that point, of course, when the Father was ready for Jesus to serve and to get involved in ministry and to show himself to the world. And at that point... Jesus is going to go out into the world, he's going to speak, and he's going to act in ways that will demonstrate truth to his claims of deity. So he's going to have to teach with great authority. He's going to have to have tremendous insight. He's going to have to have the ability to perform supernatural miracles to back up his claims. And he's going to have to have a perfect understanding of God's heart, even as he could understand the inner thoughts of the people around him. But you and I can't do that. Human beings cannot do those things. And because Jesus took the form of man, he too lacked the power to do those things on his own initiative. Jesus required the Father to enable him to do these things. And he was equipped for ministry in that regard by the Holy Spirit. 
That's one of the things we're going to look at as we study in this chapter and in the chapters to come. How the father prepared his son to do the things that God could do in the form of man. And we'll do that as we go. We won't get to all of that tonight. For now, though, in chapter 3, we're going to begin at the front of this chapter, verse 1, which jumps us ahead about 30 years in time from where we were in chapter 2, at the moment that he begins his ministry. And that story begins with the account of another man, a man by the name of John, the son of Zacharias, otherwise known as John the Baptist. So let's start there, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, as they confess their sins. Well, John the Baptist uh, is an interesting character, to say the least. He was a cousin once removed, if you want to get technical, to Jesus. That's because his mother, Mary, was a cousin of John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. Both those mothers knew that the sons that they were carrying were special people. They both knew that these were men that God had appointed to serve him in some very unique ways. John the Baptist was born about six months before Jesus, based on what we know of the pregnancy. So we can assume that both John and Jesus knew each other. They probably played together as children, at least occasionally, uh, as cousins will do. But we also know that at some point their lives diverged. Because John and Jesus lived in separate parts of the country. Their families had very different ways of life. You know, Jesus' earthly father was a manual laborer up in the Galilee, whereas John's father was a priest who served in the temple in Jerusalem at least twice a year. So those two sons probably saw less and less of each other as time went on. More importantly, though, John did not grow up knowing that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, no one outside of Mary and Joseph knew that. We'll see evidence of all this later to come. It was only Joseph and Mary, and then when Joseph was gone, only Mary knew that her son was to be the Messiah. So Jesus grew up in obscurity, just as John did. You may remember the account in John's gospel, different John now, John the Apostle. You remember in his gospel account about where Jesus and Mary attend the wedding in Cana in chapter 2 of his account. And Mary asked Jesus to perform that miracle to save the, the host's reputation over the wine. And at that point, Jesus rebukes his mother and tells her, it's not my time yet. You're trying to reveal me too quickly. And the key point in that story was that Jesus came to earth for a very specific mission, and that mission had a very specific timetable that was set by the Father. So until the Father was ready to reveal his Son, no one was going to know. And therefore, no one thought Jesus was anyone other than a carpenter's son from some small family up in the Galilee. But as I said, there comes a time when God's ready for Jesus to be unveiled. It's time to tell the world about the Messiah. And at 30 years old, Jesus had come to that point, according to the Gospel of John. And Matthew opens by just saying, in those days. But in those days, we first find John the Baptist preaching, it says, in the wilderness of Judea. Judea is Judah's tribal territory in the area of Israel today. It's kind of in the southern half of what we see on the map today. It's Israel. It extends from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the Jordan River on the east and from just north of Jerusalem in the north all the way down to the Negev Desert. It's a big patch of the southern part of Israel. 
And right in the middle of that patch of land, there's a mountain range. It runs north-south. Jerusalem sits on the top of it. And when the winds blow in from the Mediterranean, they come, I guess if I'm going to help you here visually, comes from the west, and they bring the moisture in off the sea. They come up into the hill country of the Judean area of Judea. And as you know how this works, air cools as it rises, releasing its moisture. So it's raining a lot on the foothills, the hill country. But as that wind crosses over those mountains, it's now dry and it's hot. And so on the leeward side of those mountains, on the Jordan River side, the eastward side, it's desert. It's just barren, waste desert. Anyone who goes on the Israel trip with me, we're going to see all this firsthand. It's called the Judean wilderness for that reason. And so when you think wilderness, don't think like we do sometimes about hill country wilderness or forested wilderness. Think like West Texas wilderness. Nothing. And I grew up in West Texas, I can tell you, not much there. So at some point in his 20s, John the Baptist would have left his home, which was not in the Judean wilderness, not originally, and he just retreated into this harsh region. And John would have spent most of his time probably in the lower river valley, lower Jordan River Valley, just north of the Dead Sea, northeast of Jerusalem. He was surviving off the land, Matthew tells us, and there's not much there, which is why he's eating locusts and honey, because I mean that's probably the bulk of what you could find out. There's nothing out there. I've been out there. There's nothing there. It's just desolate. And he has minimum contact with people, it says. In verse 4, it says he's dressing basically like a prophet in mourning, sackcloth and so on. So out in this remote location is this, what would appear to be a crazy guy, hanging out there, and people are streaming out to him from great distances, from Jerusalem, from all over Judea. We're not talking about a short little walk across the street to get a hamburger. We're talking about people walking for a day or more into the wilderness. And as they hear him, they go out to hear him preach. As they hear him preaching, they're confessing their sins. And then they're entering into the Jordan River with him, and and he's baptizing them. Now, somewhere during his time while he was in the wilderness, Luke tells us that the Lord spoke to John audibly and gave him this ministry and told him how to do what he's doing. Specifically, he gave him this ministry of baptism, which is, of course, where he gets his name from. The word baptism comes from a Greek word that just means to dip or to sink into water. And Jews of this day were well acquainted with it. Baptism was not a new concept for them. The Jews practiced both from the law and from the rabbinical teachings of their day. They practiced a whole group of different ceremonial washings that we would consider baptism today. Some of those washings involved little more than hand washing, but other ones involved submerging the entire body like we do in baptism today. The idea of a baptism was not new then. One of the requirements, by the way, for ceremonial washing was that the water be living water. And that's a term in the Bible for moving water. So it had to be water that was coming out of a spring or a river. So practically speaking, that explains why John is where he is, in the desert, by the Jordan River. Because the Jordan was the main source of moving water that was suitable enough to submerge an entire body. I mean, there were other spring-fed pools and baths in places like Jerusalem and in other cities. But those pools were under the control of Jewish authorities who were opposed to people like John. He never would have had the ability to use them. So if you're going to go out somewhere where you can do what you want and have enough water that's moving to do it, this is it. This is where you go, the Jordan River. But having said all that, Jewish baptisms didn't have the same spiritual emphasis that our baptisms do today. They were generally something different. They grew out of the law, and they were associated with a concept in Scripture called basically ritual cleansing. So here's the idea. The idea is that sin 
has made us spiritually dirty before God. And so we know we need to be cleansed, spiritually speaking. Now, obviously, water doesn't do that. Water does not cleanse away your sins. Not the baptism we do, not the ones they were doing either. It's just water. It's not magic. But God gave Israel those physical representations of washing, of, of water washing, to help them understand their need for spiritual cleansing, which can only come from God. So it was a way of explaining it, of teaching it to the Jewish people through their law. And so Israel practiced these washings regularly. And they did it as a reminder that they need God to wash them. Now, a Jew is required to wash at various times, usually in full body immersion, in this ritual way. And the law itself required these washings in connection with things like feasts or certain specific situations. In fact, the rabbi said a whole bunch of reasons why he had to do it. But John's baptism is none of those. What I'm saying is, of all the ways Jews washed or immersed or dipped or whatever... None of them were for the reasons and in the manner that John was performing his. He was doing something here completely new, completely unrelated to any requirement found in the law or any other rabbinical teaching. His baptism was something that had never been seen before under these circumstances. It's obviously something the Lord gave him to do, which is why he's doing it. But for that same reason, it confounded everybody else, at least among the Jewish religious leaders. The message that he was preaching in conjunction with his baptism, has three parts in what we read. Matthew gives us two of these parts. Luke gives us the third part. The first part of his message was a call to action. The second part of his message was a cause for acting, a motivation to act. And the third part of his message was a requirement to make a promise. And well, let's look at all three of these. The first part of his message, this call to action. It is a single, powerful word. Repent, or repentance. That's a word that Christians often hear. Most of you have probably heard it. But despite its familiarity, I don't think it's very well understood. I run into this from time to time. It doesn't mean you feel sorry for what you've done. It doesn't mean that you regret having done something wrong. That's not what repentance means. It literally means a change or turn in your thinking. So you could say to repent is to change your mind. That's what it means, to change your mind. So it means changing your mind about sin. Where before we gave no thought to our sin, much less to God's perspective on our sin, but now we've repented, that is, we've changed our thinking on the subject, and so now we're greatly concerned with our sin, and even more, we're deeply troubled by what God thinks of our sin. And so we turn to Him seeking His mercy. That's it. That's what repentance means. A full-on recognition that I might be in trouble and I need God. That's what the Bible means when it tells you to repent. It's asking someone to face the reality of who you are and who God is, and you're not Him. In fact, you're a long way from Him. And recognizing that you are a sinner, you then understand, in my current way of thinking and working, I'm disobeying God, and I'm offending God, and knowing I've offended God, and one day I'm going to face God, I'm a little worried about that right now. And I have that preoccupation on my mind. I actually want to know what I can do about this problem that I'm suddenly aware of. I'm repenting from ignorance and apathy to concern and humility. I'm humbling myself before God, seeking for some solution. That doesn't mean yes, you necessarily know what that solution is. You know, If you stop at repent and go no further, you're just going to feel bad. You need someone to explain what comes next. That's the whole story is repent and. right? 
Well, he starts with repent because it starts there with everyone. But the second part is a cause to act in repentance. He says, well, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A Jew of John's day would have understood what he meant very well. But you and I might need a minute or two of explanation. The Old Testament prophets had been telling Israel for centuries that one day the Lord was going to set up a kingdom on the earth. This kingdom was going to rule the entire earth, not just some portion of it. All the nations would be under the authority of one king. And this one kingdom would rule the world. That's what God had been telling Israel was going to come. He promised them it would be centered in Israel. And that Jewish people would be the chief nation among all these nations in this one kingdom. And most of all, they had been told that a Jewish Messiah, Savior, would be that king, that ruler of this entire kingdom. That's what God had been promising Israel for centuries through their prophets. He promised this in various ways, through the covenants, to the patriarchs, to David at one point, to Solomon at another point. He reinforced it in descriptions throughout all of the major prophets and the minor prophets. So for centuries, Jewish people have been hearing this thing was coming. And the last prophet they heard this from was a guy named Malachi. But by the time John the Baptist is in Jordan baptizing, Malachi's been dead for going on 400 years at this point. And since that time, the Lord has not spoken a word to Israel. For 400 years, they haven't heard anything. A lot of people within Israel were starting to wonder if this was ever going to happen. The very idea of a coming messianic kingdom, it was seeming more and more unlikely. I mean, Rome had come in, conquered. There wasn't any sight of a Messiah anywhere. Just gotten to the point where they didn't expect it anymore. But now you find this guy, John, in the wilderness, declaring... The kingdom of God is at hand. At hand. And you know, when we say something is at hand, what we're saying is it's on the verge of appearing. It's imminent. Like when you see a woman who's near the end of her ninth month of pregnancy, you say that birth is at hand. Right? Any second now, it's going to happen. Well, that's what he's saying about the kingdom. And now that's motivation, isn't it? I mean, if you're a Jew and you understand what that means and you're being told repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, you just had the best reason anyone could ever give you to heed that call to repent. The prophets had foretold that the arrival of the kingdom would coincide with the resurrection of God's people and a judgment to follow. One of the clearest places you see this is in the book of Daniel. Let me just read you a couple verses. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. This is speaking about... At the end of this age, as the kingdom arrives, we read this. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, speaking of Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, in other words, those who are dead, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So that's the book of Daniel's telling us that at the end of this age, following a time of great distress on the earth, a kingdom will arise, will appear. And at that time, God's elect will be rescued. They'll be awakened from the dust of the ground, meaning they'll be resurrected into their eternal bodies. Then a judgment will follow. Some will be welcomed into that kingdom, others will be excluded. So the point is this, when a new prophet, after 400 years, comes along and tells you, kingdom's coming, I mean like now it's coming, that's a good time to get right with God. 
That's a good time to start thinking about repenting. That's, that's an excellent time to get ready. Because the test is about to come. It's like the way an employee feels when they hear the boss is going to be walking past their desk that day. Or the student feels when the teacher says, do you have a pop quiz tomorrow? All that time spent ignoring your studies suddenly changes to, I care nothing but my studies right now. For 24 hours, I'm going to study. I mean, that's if you do care about your grade, right? So Israel felt motivated to clean up their act. That's the whole point of the message. He was giving them a fair warning that you had better get serious about your relationship with God because He's coming whether you want it or not. The kingdom is coming. And so, heed my call. They knew that if they continued in their present ways, they weren't going to be ready for God's arrival. They're going to miss the kingdom. They'll be one of those people that Daniel says will be sent to everlasting contempt. And then thirdly, lastly, the message that he gives includes one more component that you have to find in Luke. And I'm going to read you a few verses out of Luke where it's given. This is the same moment in Luke, but Luke records a little more detail. Luke 3.3 says, And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Later in that chapter, verse 16, when John is speaking, it says, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear, to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. And that's the third part of what he was saying. His third part of his message was the gospel. That is, a Messiah is coming, he's coming for his people, and this Messiah, being greater than John or any other prophet, has the power to do something no one else can do. He can forgive you of your sins. So he'll have the power to judge, he'll have the power to condemn, but he also has the power to save. So he's offering that solution. You know, when you get told you have to repent because there's a test coming and you realize you're not right with God, the question becomes, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And the answer was right there. You have a Savior coming, and you place your trust in Him, you will not be disappointed. He has the power to forgive your sins. So in a nutshell, that's what the baptism of John meant. If you ever wondered, what did it mean to get baptized by John? What it meant was to accept his message. To accept his baptism was to accept what he said. That is, you repented, you turned away from your sinful life, you prepared your heart to meet God because you believed that the arrival of the kingdom was imminent. And as a result, you wanted to be included in it. And you were acknowledging your need for the forgiveness of your sins, and you were placing your faith in the promise of this soon-to-come Messiah. Remember, the, the word in Greek for baptism means to dip. It refers specifically to the way that people used to take cloth and color it by dipping it in a liquid dye. So you'd have a cloth that was white, let's say, and you'd dip it into a red dye, and as it came out of the water, it was entirely red. It had taken on the properties of that water. It had been baptized in the way they used to speak. And so in the same way, anyone who submitted to the baptism of John was accepting his teachings. They were taking on his point of view. They were becoming like him in that sense concerning the Messiah. They were committing themselves to follow Him. And here's an important detail. They were promising that they would follow whoever John pointed out to be Messiah. They said, you tell us who He is, 
and we'll believe you. Because he was claiming that the one that they were waiting for, he had been told was coming soon, and he would point them out. Later in John's Gospel, you actually see John doing that, pointing out who Jesus is to his followers. In John 1, when he points out, he says, There, behold, the Lamb of God, the one I've told you about. And then he tells all his disciples, John tells all his disciples, I must decrease so he may increase. Go follow him. And they did. And forevermore, anyone who was baptized by the baptism of John, when they were told who the Messiah was, they embraced him as a result. There's a great example of that in Acts. In Acts chapter 19, this is decades later, Paul's out preaching, and he goes into the city of Ephesus. And while there, he comes into contact with 12 Jewish men. As he comes upon these men, this is what happens in Acts 19, chapter 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard of whether there is a Holy Spirit or not. So in other words, they weren't believers. They were disciples, but not of Jesus yet. And so he said to them, Well then, into what were you baptized then? And they said, Into John's baptism. Now, stopping there, you remember when John was killed? John was killed at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So John died even before Jesus did. So if these guys were baptized with John's baptism, they were baptized back in the day when John was in the Jordan before Jesus was known. They must have been baptized. They moved on. They left the land. They lived in Ephesus, outside the land of Judea. They went back to Ephesus. And ever since then, now we're talking at least 30 years later, they're waiting to find out who the Messiah is. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, and that is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there you go. These men immediately embraced the name of the man that John declared to be Messiah. They just didn't know it until Paul revealed it to them. So they were doing what they had committed to do decades earlier when they took the baptism of John. So looking back now at Matthew's gospel, he says that John's ministry in this way, this baptism ministry, this repentance and and a call for people to ready themselves, this whole ministry is a fulfillment, he says, of Old Testament prophecy. In verse 3, Matthew says John's ministry fulfilled Isaiah's words when Isaiah told the people of Israel that God would send a prophet to precede the Messiah's arrival. Now, we want to go back to the source. We want to take a closer look at what Matthew is quoting. I'm just going to read three verses from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and let the rugged terrain a broad valley, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One little interesting footnote here. Remember last week we talked about how God is the author of all Scripture, and it's all working together. And He often shows you little things early that He can show you more about later that will give you some confidence to believe in what you're reading. Here's just one that I love, just so simple but so beautiful. You know, Isaiah has 66 chapters, and as many have noted, there are 66 books in the Bible. And the way the Bible is divided, of course, is that there are 39 and 27. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Well, Isaiah divides equally the same way. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah map very well to the Old Testament. And the last 27 chapters of Isaiah 
tell the story of the New Testament. Well, the first chapter in Isaiah of the New Testament would be chapter 40. After the 39 are over. Look how chapter 40 begins, talking about John the Baptist. Look how the first book of the New Testament begins, talking about John the Baptist. Isn't that interesting how God has lined the two up again? Is that coincidence? Luck? Or the inspired work of a holy God who writes Scripture? You remember last week I taught that there are four ways you can interpret Scripture? Each of those methods is in addition to just looking at Scripture purely literally. We don't ever throw away the literal interpretation. But in many cases, you can look beyond the literal and see something more. And the Jewish rabbis who studied Scripture had found there were four additional ways that Scripture could be understood beyond the literal. Last week in Matthew, we saw two of those methods in chapter 2. They were called by the Hebrew names Ramez and Drash. The Ramez method recognizes that sometimes Scripture is teaching you a picture, even as it teaches something literal. And the Drash method sees principles that are common across seemingly unrelated passages of Scripture so that we can understand this principle is still being applied. Well, here in Matthew, as he quotes more Old Testament Scripture, you're seeing the third of the four methods used now. Now he's using a method called Peshat. And Peshat in Hebrew just means simple or straight. And this is a method that's very easy because it just interprets the text to mean what it says and nothing more. It is just what it says. That's it. It's purely literal interpretation of of Scripture. It's the most often used method for that reason. And here's what you should use in this case. Matthew tells us, use the Peshat method to understand Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 was speaking literally about the work of John the Baptist. He sent a voice out to Israel calling from the wilderness to the effect that the Lord is here, prepare for him. In metaphoric language, he says, we're going to make a smooth way out of a crooked, hard road in the desert. Rough ground is going to become easy. Rugged terrain is going to be like a broad valley. And the glory of the Lord would be revealed. All human flesh would see it. Now, we know the voice in the wilderness. We know that's John. He says it. But what about all those metaphors about making rough things smooth and high mountains low and all of that? Well, it's a reference to the hearts of the people of Israel. That John is announcing Jesus' arrival, probably for about six months. And as he does that, day after day in the desert, he's preparing people's hearts to accept Jesus when he finally comes. And in that way, Isaiah is saying, it's like making ground easier to walk on. Because we know that when Jesus actually does arrive, there are no major geographical changes to Israel. So we know this is all metaphor. But these metaphors describe hearts, people who were previously disinterested in their sinlessness, they're hard-hearted, they don't care about God. That's like rough terrain or a high mountain. Instead, by the work of John the Baptist, those hearts are awakened, their attitudes are softened, repentance takes hold. That's like rough ground being plowed to make it easier for God's Word to penetrate. So in practical terms, what he's doing is he's preparing an audience to receive the king who's about to appear. I mean, there's nothing worse than having a dignitary show up and there's no one to receive him. And that's not just unique to Jesus. This is customary. When any king or dignitary plans a trip, they commonly would send people ahead of them to ensure that there was a reception for them when they got there. Even Jesus' own disciples did this for him at one point. In the Gospels later, we'll hear of him moving northward into this area of Samaria, and his disciples go ahead of him to make sure they can find a place for him to sleep while he's there. It's the same idea. I mean, when our president goes somewhere today, there's an advance team that flies out ahead of him to make sure that everything's proper for his Arrival, not just security, but protocol and everything else. There's nothing new in this. But in spiritual terms, what you see happening here is a beautiful example of God's grace and His mercy toward His people. 
He extends his infinite grace and mercy in the face of Christ on the cross. That's the obvious way that God has shown us his mercy and grace. It's the highest love the world has ever seen. But he didn't stop there. He could have. But he is so good, God is so good, that he went the additional step of ensuring that people didn't miss it, of telling them ahead of time. And what I really love is he didn't just warn the people ahead of time that Jesus was coming. He warned the people ahead of time that he was going to send someone to warn them ahead of time that Jesus was coming. You see that? I mean, he just doesn't miss an opportunity. He's pursuing his people in that respect. But that brings us to a question that I want to spend a minute or two on tonight. Why send such an odd character to announce Messiah? I mean, John is is living in an isolated existence in the desert. He looks like a homeless bum. Even by their standards, by the way. Don't think that everybody looked like that. I don't know why sometimes in the movies... We like to portray these people like they're one step away from cavemen. I mean, you know, they groomed. They knew it looked good. They dressed nice. I mean, this guy had honey and locusts stuck in his beard. I'm sure that's true. I mean, you know, it's not easy when you're eating with a beard. And I have to think there were probably rumors back home about the John that disappeared. You know, Zacharias's poor son. We thought he was going to turn out so well. Whatever happened to him? You know, they must have thought he was demon-possessed or crazy. I mean, we laugh about it, but you know that was going on, right? They didn't know. And yet this is the guy the Lord chooses to announce his son's arrival. The answer for why he did that comes in the next passage. And we'll touch on this briefly. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that, From these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is John the Baptist out in the wilderness, baptizing. And as he's doing so, he's confronted by two groups of religious authorities called Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we're going to take time in future weeks to really get to know these guys better, including their motivation. There's no need to do it all tonight. Um, But let's just focus on the differences between these two guys, these groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, and John the Baptist. The differences. And frankly, the contrast could not be more stark between these two groups. The men on the left, these guys who are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they are the supreme religious authorities of Israel in their day. They were upright and uptight. They were trained. They were approved by the finest schools, rabbinical schools of their day. They had respect, generally, within the society. But in the end, they were dead wrong about what they thought they knew. Apart from a few of these guys who believed in Jesus, these guys, these leaders, were not men moved by the Spirit. They did not understand the very scriptures that they taught others. And in fact, as Jesus says to one of these Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus, in chapter 3 of John, in John 3, 9, Jesus is talking to this Pharisee, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be that Jesus was explaining? And in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? That was the state of these guys. The so-called experts were clueless. So from an outward appearance, though, if you were just walking the streets and you didn't know better, the Pharisee, the Sadducee, those guys were the experts in God. They looked like they would have every answer. And yet the truth is very different than that. They were far from God. They were ignorant of His Word. 
which is really ironic because they had memorized the entire Old Testament. That you can memorize the Bible and not understand any of it, or at least what really matters. Now, on top of all that, as you know from the Gospels, I'm sure, they persecuted anyone who dared to challenge their authority among the people. Now, that's one group. On the other hand, you've got John the Baptist. He has nothing to commend himself to the people. He's untrained. He's never been to any kind of professional religious training. Nowhere. He's unapproved. He's rough. He's unconventional. He appears out of nowhere... And he's claiming this unprecedented revelation from God himself. He's literally claiming to be the next prophet. And now, in response to him, there's a crowd. And not just a crowd showing up at some corner where there's already a lot of traffic. We're talking about people going out of their way to find this guy. And they're baptized by this guy. They're becoming his disciples. How do you explain this? And in fact, I think that's exactly why these guys have come out the Pharisees and the the Sadducees, because they don't understand it either. They want to understand why is this guy getting a crowd. In my Bible, in verse 7, my Bible reads, the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming for baptism, but that's not an accurate translation. The original Greek text should read, coming to John's baptism. They're coming to the location of the baptism, not for baptism. These guys are not coming to submit to John. They're coming to investigate him. That's why they're coming. And more than that, they're coming to discredit him. And John immediately recognizes their evil intentions. I assume he might have been warned about them, maybe by the Lord himself. And so John just responds in an attack. He says, you guys need repentance too, even though you're standing there haughty and thinking that you're better than the rest of us. And we'll look at the attack later. We'll look at the response that John gives to them more next time. I don't want to dwell on that for now. We'll pick up there again. But I want to go back to that question I just raised, the difference. Why did God pick such an unlikely character? You should already be able to see even just in the little we've seen in the text, why God wanted such an unlikely messenger. He wanted his messenger to stand apart from the religious hypocrisy of that day. I mean, God could have raised up anybody to do this. He could have given whoever he wanted a knowledge of himself. He could have given that guy or or whoever a heart to obey, could have given them the same message he gave John. I mean, for that matter, God could have raised up a Pharisee if he wanted and used that guy to herald the arrival of Messiah. God's not limited. But wouldn't a Pharisee have been the natural choice? Wouldn't that have been the obvious choice, right? If you and I had to predict in advance, wouldn't we go to the top of the chain and say, well, when God's ready to bring his Messiah, he's probably going to let the chief priest know first. And then they're going to write a memo. And then they're going to have a staff meeting. And then they're going to plan a communication plan. And then the word will get out. Yeah, that's exactly why he didn't want a Pharisee. That's exactly why he chose John the Baptist. It's the same reason why the Lord called John to disappear for a time and to act like a homeless bum for a while. And it's why he took on such a strange appearance, why he wore sackcloth. God's using all of these things to distance John, his true messenger, from the established religious authorities of that day who did not speak for God. And at the same time, he wanted us to make sure that we could identify John with the prophets of old because they looked a lot like he did. And they were mistreated just like he will be. And they were martyred in most cases just like he will be. Because, as Jesus himself said, it's not right that a prophet should die outside of Jerusalem. It was an authentication of his message that he was rejected in that sense. And God does this typically. If you've looked at Scripture very much, if you've read much of it, you know I'm right. That God is commonly taking the most unlikely of sorts and using them as his messengers. I mean, he uses goat herders. Amos is a goat herder. He uses shepherds like David. He uses the meek like Gideon. He uses unimpressive sorts all the time, like me. 
as a person who can speak for him in the sense of teaching his word. He uses you. No offense. You know why? Because the Lord doesn't want us to explain a person's expertise or knowledge of God in human terms. You remember how the first apostles were treated when they started to preach the name of Jesus right after Pentecost? Particularly John and Peter. When John and Peter went out preaching, they were immediately confronted by all of these religious so-called experts who were challenging what they were saying. And There was a moment in Acts chapter 4 when you read this. 4.13. Now, as this is speaking about the religious leaders. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. I just love that. They were amazed that untrained, uneducated men could speak for God in powerful ways and they had nothing to say in response when they saw what God was doing through them. Exactly. God silences the so-called experts with the work of unqualified men. Not a lot has changed, I don't think. Not in the church, not since then. Because he still does that all the time. I'm living proof of that. God has always chosen the least likely so that he would receive all the glory. You know, when Jesus was praying to the Father and later in this book, in chapter 11, I love this statement Jesus makes in his prayer. 11.25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. He was talking about you and me when he said infants. You know that, right? God calls you and I, he calls us unqualified men and women to serve him. Spiritually, we are infants. He does this because he knows that our hearts and our minds will work in counterproductive ways if he did it in any other fashion. Think about it for a minute. When you see someone who's got great pedigree and they're accomplished and they're trained and they've been to the finest religious institutions and they've spent years studying and then they speak for God and it seems mighty and impressive, don't you just assume that that's how you get there, that that's what it takes to be able to do anything of use for God? Don't you assume that person has what they have because of the training? Because of the work they put in? And as a result, don't you also begin to assume that if you're ever going to know the deep things of God or be that close to God, you either have to put in all that same time they did or give up and depend on them, which is where you get priests from and imams from. All the other forms of men who want to tell you that you go through them to get to God. That's why those things even come to pass. It's why we even let them come to pass, because we're fooled into thinking that it's human achievement that opens the doorway to God, to a knowledge of Him. But friends, God is not found in ivory towers or because you have a PhD. Not in those ways. He doesn't reveal Himself to the proud or the haughty, or so He says in His Word. He doesn't have an interest in furthering a person's reputation, much less your career. The Lord reveals himself to those who speak or seek him humbly, those who are infants, those who heed the call like John's call to repent, to prepare for God. And God chose someone like John the Baptist to announce Messiah, I think in part to mock the self-importance of those Jewish religious leaders who were leading Israel astray. And then he revealed himself to men and women who came to the most unlikely herald, John. Think about what it must have meant to someone to actually leave their home and walk hours and days to go find this nutcase out in the middle of the desert. It said a lot about your heart and your desire, didn't it? 
Today, I think God's doing the same thing. He just calls people like you and I. He calls people like us to serve Him. And at the same time, I think He's overlooking some of the proud and and religiously uh, preferred people in our culture. And I speak again from personal experience. The only thing missing in my case is I don't have any locusts or or, or honey in my beard. But for those who don't know me very well, I've never been to seminary. I'm not saying that in some proud sense. I'm just saying it matter-of-factly. didn't work out that way for me. My life didn't take me in that direction. So I had to study in the, uh, on my own. You know, I tell people all the time, there's a hard way and an easy way to learn the Bible. I'm doing it the hard way, but you can too. No one's, no one's special in that regard. God didn't reserve the Bible for certain people. The Lord chooses unqualified people to serve Him so that He will get all the glory, but He won't leave you untrained. He doesn't ask you to be incompetent. He just asks you to be available. And John the Baptist couldn't hold a candle to the training and the accomplishments of the men who challenged him. But he had something they didn't have. He had the truth. He had the Word of God, which was revealed to him by the Spirit of God. A truth that God withheld from those pompous posers who went out there to criticize him. Now, I'm not saying that education is a problem. I'm not saying that training is the problem. I'm certainly not saying that coming out of a fine institution is a problem. I'm saying those things don't make you available to God. They don't give you insight in and of themselves. They're not a substitute for a devoted heart that seeks God in His Word. And so if you've always thought that you are somehow unable to serve God because you didn't have those qualifications, let me tell you, my life experience and my, my understanding of Scripture would tell you that those things don't matter to God. I tell you, it's not about ability. It's about availability. And if you're here tonight because you want to know more about the Word of God, hallelujah. Don't let it end there. Figure out how God wants to use you to further that cause. And perhaps the most readily available thing you could do for us is to just share the Word about this church. Let others know that we're doing this every week and see if they want to be a part of it and share it with them. Heavenly Father, I do thank you, Father, for the Word that you reveal it to infants, that our own abilities and knowledge, our preparation and pedigree is not what matters, not in the beginning, Father. You just call us because you love us and you give us the word to train us. You ask us to spend our time in it. You prefer men and women who do not come and overshadow you with their own ability, but who by their weakness you can be seen to be strong. So, Father, use our weaknesses to be strong in our lives and let us be strong in someone else's for your sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.